chapter 20. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. It's right after John chapter 19. You should be able to find it easy. Before the 21st chapter. Hey, did that help you? Fourth of the Gospels. John chapter 20. I'm just going to read verse 1. Well, and part of verse 2. All of verse 2. One of two. It wasn't, I didn't plan that, but I just felt like reading both, so I will. John chapter 20, starting verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Sunday, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciples whom Jesus loved, or the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. Lord, we just ask again your spirit now to speak by your word through this story, the greatest story that has ever been told because it's true and it's powerful to save lives. It's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. I want to take you back in time. So this was the resurrection morning. This was Sunday. This was the first day of the week. But I want to take you back to where it began as far as what started to make it all unfold. What started to bring Jesus to Jerusalem? Uh, by the way, our trip to Israel is sold out. We have no more spaces left. So I'll take you back to Israel this morning if we can. Uh, Lynchburg sold out as well. This joint meeting, uh, joint group, uh, all of their 25 seats, all of ours. So we're waitlisting. Uh, but this morning, I want to take you back to the Holy Land, back to Israel, by what started to transpire in the days that led up to Jesus going from Adored to hated in just a matter of days. So around 2,000 years ago, during the Passover season, unbeknown to the vast majority of people and nations on earth, a Jewish Galilean, now 33 years of age, he was a faithful observer to the Jewish feasts and laws. He was approaching Jerusalem for one final Passover. This was the week he had looked toward for his entire life. The prophet Isaiah had written 700-plus years earlier that his face was set like a flint. Luke's gospel, summing up the singular direction of his life and ministry and travels, writes in Luke chapter 13, verse 22, and he went through the cities and the villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. And although he was unknown to most of the world, he had become very well known and followed in the areas of Judea, in Samaria, Galilee, and even parts of modern-day Lebanon and Jordan, which they weren't called that at the time. Areas to the north, northeast, and east of modern-day Israel. For the past three years, Jesus had spent his life teaching and preaching, expounding on the writings of the law and prophets, the nature of God, and proclaiming the need for repentance and salvation. He had healed hundreds, if not thousands of people. He had miraculously fed thousands on at least two occasions. Remember, he used some fish and some loaves. He had walked on water. 
He had calmed storms, turned water into wine. There were also numerous witnesses to each of these miraculous events. More recently, there was now an added buzz, an interest in Jesus, as it was confirmed that he had raised a man from the dead, Lazarus, in a small town called Bethany, located just a short distance from Jerusalem. Many in that village, they had mourned Lazarus' death. They had seen him sealed in the tomb, only to witness Jesus calling him from the grave, Lazarus, come forth. The grave or the raising of Lazarus was the seventh miracle in John's gospel. It was the climax of Jesus' public ministry. Now, this actually wasn't even the first time that Jesus had raised someone from the dead, if you'd read the gospels. But on the other two occasions, the deceased had just died. But Lazarus, he had been dead and buried for four days. And given Bethany's proximity to Jerusalem and the rising optimism among the people that God had sent this man of wisdom and miraculous power that could finally challenge Rome, the excitement was building among the people, but not with everyone. The high priest, the religious leaders, they were alarmed and they were on high alert. They had always resisted the teaching of Jesus. They had sent representatives again and again to hear what Jesus was teaching, how he was being received, report back to the scribes and the priests. They had tried on various occasions to trap Jesus in his words, uh, no doubt to cast doubt on his authority. To date, they had been completely unsuccessful every time. No matter their efforts, Jesus' fame and renown was soaring and growing. They had always been determined to sabotage his life, to sabotage his ministry, but the determination that they had went into what I call obsessive overdrive shortly after Lazarus was raised from the dead. Jesus had to be stopped. He had to be killed. Not silence, killed. This was a sensible solution to the high priest and the leaders. It was murder from God's perspective. The clock was now ticking. The Passover, win the Passover was the window of time that the Jewish leaders begin to focus all their attention on. Turn with me to John chapter 11. You're in John 20, just go back to chapter 11. John documents how this went down exactly what led to everything that took place in Jerusalem on that week that people now call Passion Week. Now, Lazarus has just been raised from the dead in verse 43 and 44. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, loose him and let him go. Starting verse 45, chapter 11, then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen these things that Jesus did believed in him. So now a whole other group of people start believing in Jesus. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, uh, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. That's for sure. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. Wouldn't that be awesome, huh? And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should, uh, and that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being the high priest that year, 
he prophesied unwittingly that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. From that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went there into the country, went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there he remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple, and they're asking this question, what? Do you think he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, should report it and they might seize him. So, is he going to come to the feast? Now the wait was on. Would Jesus show up? Would he come to the Passover or would he go into hiding? For the high priest and the leaders and their informants, they had everyone in place to watch for Jesus' potential arrival. See, Jesus was a threat to their power. Their eyes were everywhere, not only to spot Jesus if he came, but how to best apprehend him. For the people, thousands were descending on Jerusalem. Those that had seen Jesus before were hoping to see him again. Those that had only heard of him were hoping to finally get their first glimpse of Jesus. Even out-of-town Jewish pilgrims coming from the far flungs of the Roman Empire were hearing about this amazing man as they arrived in the city for Passover. They were hearing about Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, who is this man? And they're told he's a man like David, but even power that David didn't have. He could be the king to supplant Rome. And the word begins to spread among the people. Jesus is coming. Now, he would come down. That's the Mount of Olives. That's the sun rising over the Mount of Olives. You've been with a a Nehemiah study. Uh, By the way, the Dome of the Rock was not there then. Instead, the magnificent temple, Solomon's portico, one of the wonders of the ancient world. It would have glistened like you've never seen anything. The Jerusalem stone, the white marble in the temple, all that is where the Dome of the Rock now sits today. But it was larger, much larger in scale. And the sun would be arising on the east side. Jesus would be coming down from the east, down the Mount of Olives toward the east gate. I'll point that out in just a second. Word spreads. Again, you have to take away the modern view here. Think of the Mount of Olives covered with grass and the, and the great temple in front of it there. Word spreads that Jesus is on a young donkey. He's coming uh, from Bethany. For the religious leaders, in their mind, if he's coming, he's entering our trap. But Jesus, knowing their every single thought, he's not entering a trap. He's coming to fulfill the Father's will for him in the world. For the Roman soldiers, they're now well aware of Jesus too. He's perhaps a curiosity to them, but he's no threat to them. He's he's not on a war horse. He's on a donkey. And he has no army of trained soldiers, much less Roman-trained soldiers, but just a group of common working people are following him. Now, as Jesus descends down the Mount of Olives, now this is looking down from the Mount of Olives. This is, if you can kind of see the bus in the foreground here, that's the Jerusalem road that winds right from, all the way from down below sea level where Jerusalem is, all the way up to 2,600, 2,700 feet above sea level until you get to the Mount of Olives, and then you're looking 
over towards the east gate, which is not the east gate that was there then. Obviously, these walls were rebuilt uh, by the Ottoman Empire and the Suleiman, but uh, this is the temple would have been right here. Jesus is proceeding towards the city coming down the Mount of Olives. It's Sunday. It's the first day of the week. It's the start of the week. Throngs are crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Clothes are laid on the ground in front of him. Palm branches are laid down in front of him. Palm branches are being waved by thousands upon thousands of people. Now the Feast of Sukkot, which is a fall feast, commands Israel to use palm branches and wave them in worship and expressing rejoicing to God. But that's a fall feast. But the people seem to take and do it here. Also, the walls of the temple inside, overlaid with gold, also had palm leaves carved on them. And it was an ancient tradition among all the Middle East area that when you'd welcome kings, you'd welcome them by waving palm branches. So this was a spontaneous response. No one had to organize it. People just did it. Because they believed this man was sent directly from God, and he was the king that they longed for. But Jesus wasn't coming as a king yet. He was coming as a lamb, the Passover lamb for the sins of the world. Just as each Jewish family was right at this same time starting to select their Passover lambs, each family had to have a lamb, or you could have a lamb for several or a couple of families, just had to be enough to feed both families. But they were unwittingly selecting Jesus as the lamb for the nation. Over the next four days, the Passover lambs were to be inspected for any spots or blemish. Couldn't have a single spot or blemish on the lamb. The same would take place with Jesus. They would be inspecting him unknowingly. They were trying to find spots and blemishes fulfilling prophecy. Now, because the vast crowds not only welcomed Jesus, but lavished him with praise and honor. The religious leaders, they had a dilemma. Apprehending him in public was now out of the question. They could not apprehend him in front of thousands of people. Arresting him might set off an instantaneous riot, putting their power in just as much jeopardy as the risk they saw in Jesus. So they hold off for the next four days and begin to question him, trying to find fault in him, trying to trap him in his word. For four days, just as the Passover lamb, he is inspected by the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. But he confounds them all, doesn't he? And his purity and authority is only validated even more. Every time he speaks, they look worse, he looks better. It's also during this time that he cleans out the temple Yes, it's okay for a man of God to get fired up because Jesus did, didn't he? He cleaned the temple out during this time. All of this only adds to their intense desire to now capture and kill him. They were already determined, it's just their blood is boiling now. Then the priests and leaders catch what they might have perceived as a divine gift or unexpected favor. Judas, one of Jesus' 12, is willing to talk and he's even willing to give Jesus up, to set him up. The betrayal will take place. It's agreed upon shortly after the Passover meal that Jesus is planning. It's now referred to by us as the Last Supper. The price is set, 
30 pieces of silver, which is approximately four months' wages for the very one who created time and space and everything in it, selling God for four months. On the day of unleavened bread, Jesus sends Peter and John into the city, telling them that a man will be waiting for them. He'll be holding a pitcher of water. The instructions were to follow this man, and he would take them to a furnished upper room that would already be prepared with tables and everything else, but they would need to prepare the Passover meal. And it happened precisely as Jesus said that it would. That evening, Jesus and the 12 disciples gathered for the Passover meal. It was at that same meal that Jesus washed the disciples' feet prior to the meal. During the meal, Jesus proclaims to the group, one of you is going to betray me. You know, all the disciples were, were freaked out by this. They were all saying, is it me? Is it me? Lord, is it I? And the commotion, Jesus hears Judas say, Rabbi, is it I? And Jesus answers and says, you have said it. Jesus proclaims that the cup and the bread, which they had probably been celebrating since they were children in the Passover meal, he says, this cup and this bread represents my body and my blood. At the end of the meal, he tells them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this very night. And Peter responds, no way. Even if all the rest of these yahoos stumble, I am not. I will, he said these words, I will never stumble. Just as he says this, Jesus says to Peter, this night, you're going to deny me three times. Peter and the other disciples are adamant. They're all adamant. It's not just Peter. He just speaks for the group a lot of times. Uh, they're all adamant. They will die for him. Leaving the Passover meal and the upper room. I actually took this picture in the Garden of Gethsemane when we were there a couple of years back. Leaving the Passover meal in the upper room, it's now late at night. And Jesus leads the disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane. It's just outside the city walls, just up on there on that northeast side of the city to pray. And he asked the disciples to pray with him, but they can't stay awake. It's in this place that Jesus cries out to the Father, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. The stress and the agony on Jesus is now more than all of our brains combined can comprehend. More than all the brains in the world combined can comprehend. Jesus is 100% man, but he's also 100% God. But he, at this point, has laid aside his God power, if you will, to suffer as a man. Luke, the physician, tells us at this point that God sends down an angel from heaven to strengthen Jesus for the final steps. Maybe you're here this morning and you need Jesus to strengthen you for some steps. He can. Jesus' time in prayer is so intense, he begins to sweat drops of blood at this time. Jesus comes and he wakes his disciples. He wakes them up and he says, rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. He says, the hour is here. At that very moment, a large group with torches and swords and clubs sent by the high priest and his guard have come to get Jesus. 
Judas had set the whole thing up. Judas is in front of the group of soldiers. And he comes and he gives Jesus a very common Middle Eastern a kiss on the cheek as a warm greeting. Jesus asked them, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Jesus has just been in such intense prayer. When he says, I am he, they all fall backwards. All of them. John says, they all fell down. Now, that should have been a major clue. <laughs> that this just might be someone different than us. Peter, he's ready to fight. He grabs his sword. He takes a swing probably at the neck, but he manages to take off the right ear of the high priest head servant, Malchus. Jesus immediately forbids Peter and the others to even resist. He says, no, 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 this is, this is my father's will. He attaches the ear and fully heals the ear with one touch. Second major clue <laughs> that maybe we shouldn't be arresting this man. Twice in a matter of moments, he does use the power of God that he has, but for a witness, not as a weapon. For a witness. He reminded his disciples that if he wanted to, it's right here he says, I could call 12 legion of angels if I want, which he could have called far more. And yet none of the wicked plans have changed. None of the soldiers changed their mind. The assistant doesn't change his mind. Everyone dusts themselves off, gets up off the ground, dusts themselves off. Malchus, no doubt, composed himself. Both my ears are back. Great. Can you imagine? This is blind, demonic things going on here. The same time Jesus is working, the demons have blinded these people. I just got my ear back, and I'm dusting myself off. Let's arrest Carry on. Jesus arrested without any further struggle. As Jesus had said, his disciples, they begin, he told them they would do this. They begin to flee in all directions. Jesus is led first to the house of Annas. He's the former high priest, but he's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who's the current high priest. Ultimately, then he's brought before the Sanhedrin, a 71-member council of priests and rabbis, the highest leading men of Israel from a religious perspective. While the city is fast asleep, the questioning and condemning begins. False witnesses are brought in to testify against Jesus, but none of their stories add up. They conflict. Everything they say doesn't in any way condemn him, nothing deserving of death. All the while, Jesus keeps, the Bible says, silent. This infuriates the high priest even more. He wants an argument. Jesus stays silent. He finally says to Jesus, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? Finally, Jesus answers, I am. And you will see, Jesus, listen to what Jesus says, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus gave him a mini message there. Caiaphas tore his robes at that moment was a sign of just desperate anguish. He tore his robes, condemns Jesus with blasphemy and the entire Sanhedrin. Well, not all of them. Joseph Arimathea, he doesn't do that either. But there's most of the Sanhedrin, more than enough to condemn, are with him. The temple guards, they blindfold Jesus at this point, 
and they begin to spit upon him, beat him, slap him with the palms of their hand, and they mock him saying, prophesy, prophesy. They took pleasure in the brutality, but death was the goal. The Sanhedrin, they could, com- uh, they could con- uh, recommend death, but the execution, well, that was under the jurisdiction of the Roman Empire. So early in the morning, Jesus was then led to Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of Judea. In early morning, Jesus was now in front of Pilate. Meanwhile, the priests and their envoys, they begin to fan out among the city and among the people to the waking population and stirring them that Jesus has been arrested and he's been arrested for blaspheming God. That's the message they're taking to the people. Pilate begins questioning Jesus, but he can't find anything wrong with him. Then he realizes, aha, light bulb moment. Jesus is from Galilee. That's Herod's jurisdiction. Herod's in town for the Passover. He's the governor of the Galilean area, so he sends him to Herod. Herod already heard many things about Jesus, was looking forward to seeing Jesus perform a miracle, thought it would be a show. But Jesus remained silent. So Herod just had him beat, mocked, and sent him back to Pilate. Pilate's wife, she comes in and informs Pilate, don't have anything to do with this just man. I've had a dream that is haunting me. Pilate marvels at Jesus, marvels that he can remain quiet. He truly looks at this man and says, this guy is amazing, and I know he's innocent. He continues to question him, trying to find a way out of sending him to his death. He knows Jesus has been brought there because of envy. Then he has Jesus beaten, scourged, and a purple robe placed upon his bloody back, ripped up to shreds, and a crown of thorns twisted into his skull. He's mocked as the king of the Jews. He's beaten yet again and spat upon yet again. Pilate thinking perhaps this would satisfy the hatred and the envy of the high priest, but their demands are only stronger. Crucify him. The demonic horde closing in, using people, But this is where people that have rejected God and the demonic force that rejected God all working together and don't even know it. Pilate is conflicted. You think you've ever had nerves? He's conflicted like you would not believe. The Bible makes it really clear. In John 19, 8, John records that Pilate was afraid. Hearts pounded out of his chest. In his frustration, he says to Jesus, do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and I have the power to release you? In other words, work with me here. Work with me and I can get you off and we'll both get out of this mess. But Jesus responded, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. From that moment, Pilate tried even harder to get Jesus released. His conscience was weighing heavy, but the demonic forces of hell were now feeding the desire to crucify, crucify, crucify. Pilate offered to let Jesus go. He tried using the Jewish custom that was every year one prisoner would be set free at Passover, but instead they cried out, give us Barabbas, a murderer. Many of these had just worshipped Jesus days earlier. They were waving palm branches just at the beginning of the week. Eventually, Pilate gives in. He can't give up his fame and his position, his money, his title. He gives in, 
He washes his hands as if that does anything before God, but he does. Washes his hands of the matter, sends Jesus to the cross. Jesus starts out carrying his own cross. He can't finish it. Simon of Cyrene then picks it up and takes it the rest of the way. It's then at a place called Golgotha, it means place of the skull, that Jesus was murdered. Three nails are cruelly driven into his body, one in each hand, one in the feet, feet conjoined right through the feet. By mid-morning, by mid-morning, Jesus is on the cross, hanging between two thieves. Above his head in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, it says these words, this is the king of the Jews. Uh, Pilate did that because he's, he said, if you're going to put me in a position of making this decision, I'm going to mock you back by calling this beaten man your king. He's mocked again. Even as he's on the cross, he's mocked again. People come and spit on him while he's on the cross, walking by. They shout at him. They taunt him. If you're really the son of God, come down from there, all that kind of stuff. Soldiers begin gambling for his clothing, all fulfilling the prophecy. It's at this point that Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Isn't that interesting? He said, they don't, even, they don't even know what they're doing. Even the criminals on either side of Jesus are mocking him. But one of them starts to see Jesus for who he really is, innocent and holy, and himself for who he is, guilty and sinful. And he says these simple words to Jesus. He's had a total change of heart. He's had a 180 on the cross. And he says to Jesus, Lord, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is faith, folks. This is what faith looks like. Jesus responds, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Wow. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to any of us here? Today you're going to be with me in heaven. Today, not next week, not today. Around 12 p.m., the earth goes dark for about three hours. There's no astronomical answer for this anywhere to be found why this would happen other than God did it. And around 3 p.m., Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And shortly after these words, he says these final words, It is finished. In the Greek, in the Greek it means telestai. It's a single word that means paid in full. Did that show up? There we go. Telestai. Paid in full. It's been found on ancient papyrus receipts of taxes. Our archaeologists have found it, and it indicates that everything of the taxes were completely paid appropriate near April 15th for us, right? But at that moment, it's that moment when Jesus said, it is finished, that he gave up his spirit. And then the earth begins to quake. And then in the temple, the veil, which would have taken two teams of oxen pulling in opposite direction, just rips right down the center. There's another clue for the priesthood, by the way, that are back at the temple. Matthew 27, 54 records that's right at this point that a Roman centurion who's standing right by the cross, and not only him, says others that were guarding with him, when they saw the earthquake, remember these were Gentile men, not Jewish, uh, when they saw the earthquake, 
when they saw the observation of the pitch, well, I don't know how dark it was, but it was dark for those three hours. When they saw all the things Jesus said from the cross, they said, truly, this was the Son of God. They were convinced. Jesus was now dead, and these men who were unbelievers when the day started were now fully convinced that he actually was God. Isn't this not amazing? The very thing that was to prove that he was just a man proved to them that he wasn't just a man because they had never seen strength like that under duress. Near the cross, Jesus' mother, Mary, her sister and Mary Magdalene stood stunned and devastated with John the Apostle. The other followers of the Bible said they stood at a distance. They stayed back. They couldn't even get too close to it. They were grieving, understandably distraught. Most of the disciples were now in hiding. They were in too much fear, too despondent, even to get anywhere near the cross. To ensure that Jesus was, in fact, dead, one of the Roman soldiers came and threw a sword up into his side. Blood and water rushed out. The Sabbath, in fact, this was a high Sabbath as part of the Passover week, was just hours away. The law mandated that Jesus and the two thieves had to be removed before sundown and before the start of the Sabbath. Two followers of Jesus, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, they took personal risk. They went public in their love for Christ before they had been afraid, the Bible tells us, to even mention that they were followers. But they go public and they go to Pilate and they said, can we have the body of Jesus? They wrapped his body, anointed it with myrrh, one of the very gifts that was given to him at his birth, aloe and spices, and they buried him before the sunset. He's put in a brand new tomb. I took this picture in the garden tomb, which is outside uh, of Jerusalem, uh, adjacent to what many believe may have been the place of the cross. We don't know for sure. Now, there's some legitimate debate, at least in my opinion, as to the precise day Jesus died. If you ever studied this, you probably have debated among yourself. Don't get too hung up on it. God will reveal it all when we get to heaven, right? But there is some debate. But regardless of that, which day it actually was, whether it was Thursday, whether it was Friday, um, Jesus made this point very clear. He said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus made it really clear. Three days, three nights, just like it was with Jonah, I'll be there resting. In his ministry, Jesus made perfectly clear what was going to happen to him as well. This should have been a shock. I mean, it would have been a shock because of the brutality of it all, but they should have seen this coming. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 34, they will of himself, they will mock him, scourge him, spit on him, and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Precisely what happened. But none of this registered with the followers of Jesus and his disciples. It all went over the head. They never heard those things. They, oh, yeah, I saw the miracles, I uh, get the Beatitudes thing, but what are you talking about with this spitting on, scourging, beating, dying, rising thing? Now, they were in deep mourning and agony. Their rabbi and their savior was gone. They believed almost everything Jesus had ever said, but the truth that he would die and rise again was still veiled from their eyes. Still veiled. To be sure, even if they knew he was going to rise, seeing your master and your friend butchered to death with such evil and brutality, well, that would shake anyone to the core, wouldn't you, wouldn't you think? 
That would have shooken me to the core. But they were dealing with both things, the horror and the shock of what they witnessed, but also how it came out of nowhere. Because just days earlier, everybody was high-fiving. Now all of a sudden, emptiness, loss, things that they, nightmares they couldn't get out of their head. These were three really dark days now as Jesus is lying in the grave. But would they continue? As they consoled one another and pondered life without Jesus and how they were going to go on, a small group of women, they go to the tomb early Sunday morning while it was still dark near the burial of their Lord. And they go there to the tomb, which is really dark on this, but, uh, and they go there to the tomb. What they never expected was that the stone was rolled back and the tomb was empty. Jesus had risen before the sun, but the disciples were unaware of this. Jerusalem was unaware of this. The world was unaware of this. You know, it's exactly like his birth. When he was born, no one knew but a tiny group of people. When he rose, no one knew but a tiny group of people. Isn't that interesting? Angels were there at his birth. Angels were there at his resurrection. Tiny group, tiny group, dark, dark. It all comes full circle. They run and tell the other disciples. Luke says that when the women came with the report that the tomb was empty, someone's taken the body of Jesus, the disciples, these mighty men of God, said, it's just, you stop telling tales. They didn't believe these women. But then finally, Peter and John decide to run to the tomb anyway. John, being younger and faster, he gets there first, and he even records that he got there first. <laughs> I'm sure Peter would later say, hey, you started before me, you know, that, or something like that. The report was correct, though. There isn't a body there. Not only that, the linen cloths are there, but uh, the, the handkerchief that was on Jesus' face is folded and lined by itself. The Roman guards, they're gone too. Now they believe the report, but still not the resurrection. Look at John chapter 20 again. Look down at verse um, 9 and 10. It says, for as yet they did not know the scriptures that he must rise again from the dead. Verse 9. The disciples went away again to their own homes. They're still bummed out. They go back to their houses, still thinking someone stole him, but he's not really risen. Verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb. This is Mary Magdalene. uh, Weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked inside the tomb, and she sees two angels in white sitting at the head the other at the feet. They'd actually come to the disciples in the city. They come back again. And while they're back the second time, if you will, um, she stays there when everybody else finally says to leave. She continues to weep at the temple, I mean, at the tomb. And then Jesus, uh, then they said to her, the angel said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Don't you love when angels ask very obvious questions? <laughs> why are you weeping? She says, because they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she said these things, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know it was Jesus. Still things are veiled. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping and whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. I don't know how she's going to pull that off, but uh, you see Mary picking up a grown man's body. But she had a good heart. Uh, She would try, give her best. Jesus says to her, Mary. That's all he says. Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, 
teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending, ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. Jesus said the one who has been given, forgiven much will love much. Jesus had cast seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. Seven demons. She was forever grateful, and her gratitude was about to be rewarded. She was the very first person to see the risen Christ. Her. She's actually mentioned in the gospel more times than most of the apostles. Not all of them, but most of them. Later that evening, Peter and John and the others finally see him for themselves. Look at verse 19 and 20. Later the same evening, first day of the week, when the doors were shut, the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. They're still petrified. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. He just shows up. Now Peter and John see for themselves. Can you imagine? You were, you were in horror, despondent, depressed, dejected, disillusioned. Jesus is there. Thomas, the Apostle Thomas, for whatever reason, he's not here. He's not even there at that. The others are. Eight days later, it's further in, the, in verses 24 through 29, eight days later, he still doesn't believe Jesus is risen. And by the way, you can get on Thomas, but we might have felt the same way, right? Thomas said, if I don't see him, I'm not believing. As fallen human beings, we're born believing just about anything except for what God says is true. We'll believe in Santa, We'll believe in all kinds of stuff. I'm glad the kids aren't here. My parent, the parents will be mad at me for that one. But um, we'll believe in just about an Easter bunny, all this stuff, but what God says is true. Notice what still remains on the body of Jesus when he shows himself to Thomas. Verse 26, and Jesus comes to the door of being shut and stood in their midst again. Peace to you. And he says to Thomas, he goes straight to Thomas, reach your finger in here. Look at my hands. Look at my Reach your, reach your, look at my hands and reach your hand in here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. That's the first verse I wrote on we believe back there, and we put that sign up. John 20, 27 there. You see, the scars of the three nails and the spear, they are going to remain for eternity in Jesus. The cross forever remains the proof of Jesus' love and power over sin. The word crux, where we say the crux of the matter, that comes from the word crucifixion. That's why we say it, because the crucifixion is the center of the matter. It is the center of our need. And Jesus, just as the cross and the blood are the solution for and the power over sin, the empty tomb and the risen Jesus is the power over death. The cross took care of sin, the resurrection took care of death. Amen? Amen? Both, you can't have one without the other. That's why I wanted to tell you the whole story. You can't have the resurrection unless you understand why it happened, how it happened, and why it's so important. The empty tomb and the risen Jesus is the power over the grave. Now Thomas can worship. He says, my Lord and my God. He fully believes. But do you and I, do we fully believe? Do we fully believe that he is risen? That he's conquered sin? That he's conquered death? I have one uh, last question here. And it says, 
Jesus says in verse 29, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Are you in this story? Because Jesus says, I am. How about you? I'm right there in verse 29. I have not, I did not see him that day. I've never touched his hands. I've never touched his side. But I believe it like I was there. If you've listened to me tell this story, I hope that you can tell. I'm telling it like I was there. I've read the Gospels enough that I feel like I was there. Because those of us who are in Christ, we already are in the Bible. Says our spirits are already seated in the heavenlies. Are you in this story? Are you in verse 29? Have you believed in Jesus? Has your soul been secured by his power over those three brutal nails and those three dark days? Do you now rejoice in the living hope of Jesus, or are you still unsure, unbelieving, watching from a distance? Or have you come near and said, no, no, he's given me his peace and his forgiveness? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning. That, Lord, these are not just words. These are words that save. These are words that transform us from death into life. These are words, Lord, that prove that you and you alone are the way, the truth, and the life. And we are so thankful that you died, but so grateful that you rose. And, Lord, it's my prayer. If anyone here doesn't know you today, if they're not believing in you, if they've not put their faith and trust in you, if they're not in verse 29, that today would be the day that they call upon the name of the Lord.